Welcome back, everyone. I'm Tony Brown, and you're listening to Firearms Cafe, the show where we discuss the philosophies of responsible firearms ownership, as well as the relevant issues and challenges that we face in the current gun culture. Hey, everybody, what's going on? Today is Sunday. It's the 21st of August, 2016. Let's go ahead and jump in with the contact info, and then we'll get the show started. If you want to contact me, I do have the voicemail, which is 206-745-2731. If you would like to send an email, or if you'd like to record your own audio, and I'll play that out for you on the show, you can send that to me at firearmscafe at gmail.com, all one word, firearmscafe at gmail.com. Over on the website, I do have buttons for Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. I also have a PayPal donation button. And uh, the website, in case you don't know, is firearmscafe.com. All right, let's go ahead and start off the show with talking a little bit about some NFA items. On the last show, I told you that I was getting a couple of suppressors and that I may be thinking about also doing maybe a short barrel rifle. I'm still kind of up in the air on whether I would, if I do a short barrel rifle, whether I would go with 300 blackout or whether I would just do a regular 5.56. I don't know on that. So I'm, you guys know how I am. I go back and forth on stuff. Getting back to the NFA stuff. So the last show was June 19th and the new stuff went into effect for trusts and how you're going to be able to do stuff with NFA items on July 13th, which means that as long as you had your forms and everything that you needed and it was postmarked, so it just had got in the mail prior to July 13th, because on July 13th was when everything was going to take an effect, ATF would sort of honor the old, the old rules. So for me, I was able to get one of my suppressors in under that. The other suppressor that I got is not going to be covered under the old rules. It's still going to be going in under the trust, but I'm going to have to do things a little bit differently. The place that I got my suppressor from was a place out in Texas. What they had to do to be able to get the suppressor over to me is they actually have to do a form three to the ATF and the ATF has to approve that and say, yes, it's okay for you, company A, to send this to or FFLA, I guess I should say, to send this to FFLB. So I got an email the other day that said, hey, we got our paperwork back from the ATF, which actually took about two months or so, which is kind of what I was sort of told that the turnaround time would be anywhere from at least two months, maybe to four, maybe to even six, depending on on what's going on. Um, I think, though, because it's going from FFL to FFL, it was maybe... They just got their regular turnaround time. So anywho, what will happen now is that once my FFL dealer here in Arizona gets the actual item, they'll call me and say, hey, we've got your form set up for you. And what they do is they they fill in their portion of the form four. And then what I have to do is I have to do a few things that are a little bit differently. Before, what I would do is I would get that stuff from then from the FFL dealer, fill out the stuff that I needed to fill out, indicate what stuff needed to be indicated, and then send that in with a copy of my trust to them. And I would have to do two copies of the form four. Now, what I have to do that's different is I have to, prior to 
sending in and supposedly there's a form that I could fill out that says, Hey, none of the stuff on my trust has changed, but because this is going in under the new rules, I'm going to go ahead and resubmit my actual copy of the trust. So what I'll do is I'll have to do two copies of the form four. I will have to, I uh, technically, I don't know if I have to, but I'm going to include a copy of the trust. I also have to submit fingerprints and a photograph of anybody who is on the trust that would be considered a what they call a responsible person. So for me, that would mean it would be obviously be myself. If my wife is on the trust, it's going to be her. If I had a friend of mine who was on the trust, and that's something too, it, you don't have to be related or anything. So you could, I think you can set up a trust with other people. Um, but if, let's say if you had your brother or your sister or something like that who was going to be act as a responsible person, then they would also have to submit this stuff as well. So fingerprints and a, a passport type photo. Now, prior to submitting the all this stuff, what you have to do before you submit those forms to ATF, and this is my understanding, I could be wrong on this, but this is my understanding, is that you have to then go down to your chief law enforcement officer who in this who in most cases is not going to be your your county sheriff is probably going to be the town that you live in. So if you live in Phoenix, Arizona or something, you would go to the you would go down to the Phoenix Police Department and submit that stuff to the I guess the chief of police. And I I'm not exactly sure though if there's going to be a separate notification form or if I have to submit a copy of the form four or just a copy of the thing saying, Hey, this is what I'm, what I'm getting. Uh, so I'll see on that as of right now, I'm not, like I said, I'm not hundred percent sure. So I'll figure that stuff out. So anyway, and I guess then once I submit it, I don't know if I have to get, if there's an approval thing from him or if it's just a thing saying, Hey, I went down and notify them that I've got it done. I don't think it's an approval based deal. So then what will happen is I will send that stuff in to the ATF. And I guess I'm not exactly sure. I, I, you know, again, I don't know how they would prove that I went down and sent the documents into the, the, um, law, the chief law enforcement officer, unless they send me a thing saying that they received it. Because again, I don't think it's an approval thing. Even if it was an approval thing out here in Arizona, the way that our gun laws are set up and the way that the sort of the culture of of policing is out here is that they don't really give you a hassle on any of that stuff. So uh, we'll, we'll kind of see on that once, once that stuff kind of comes in. So once I submit that stuff, and of course I'll have to submit a $200 to get my $200 tax stamp for that suppressor as well. And then once I do that, it will be another probably six to eight months. Maybe it, it could be as quick as four, but I doubt it. It'll probably be at least six months because I'm sure they're backlogged on everything. And once that stuff, once I get my tax stamp back from the ATF, I can go down to my FFL dealer, show them, hey, this is what it's for. Here's my tax stamp. And they will give me, at that point, they'll give me my property because I've already paid for it. So basically, they're just kind of holding on to it. That's kind of where I am in that in that process, I guess. So if any of you guys out there know, specifically for Arizona, kind of what's what they're going to want you to do type stuff. I'll go a little bit later and maybe look at the ATF website 
And I'll do that here a little bit later and then come back and, and uh, kind of do an annotation maybe toward the end. So anyway, talking about some of the stuff that's a little bit related, I had talked last time about, well, what am I going to do as far as do I want to ha- take my barrel into a gunsmith and have them turn it down for me to th- basically thread the barrel, move the sight back and all this other stuff? Or do I want to buy an aftermarket barrel, something maybe from Tactical Solutions or Kid or Volkortsen, any one of those things out there? And the problem that I was running to, running into, excuse me, was that the aftermarket barrels were in some cases almost as expensive as buying a whole brand new little Ruger 1022 or something like that that already maybe had that came with a threaded barrel. What I ended up deciding to do, and if you looked at um, threading and having the the barrel, uh, the sight maybe put back a little bit further. And then having an in, a protective cap to go on the end of it. If you look at that for some of the local gunsmiths around here, depending on what you wanted to do, it would be, oh, maybe around 125 or something like that. Uh, especially if you wanted to have the little end cap. That So that was sort of on the rifle. And then also I had that old Mark II, that Ruger Mark II. And what I had thought about doing was, well, I'll just do the same thing. I'll have that barrel turned down because I know I like the gun and it fires everything and blah, blah, blah. Well, that one was going to be about almost 200 bucks, depending on where you go. Maybe a little less, maybe a little more, that type of stuff. And at that point, then you have to, because they consider the, the what they call the upper, which is sort of your barrel and everything, that's actually considered to be the gun. So... That would have to be signed into that guy's logbooks, and depending on how long they're going to have it, this, that, and the other thing. So anyway, what I decided to do with the pistol, since we're talking about that now, is I decided to go ahead and look for, and if I could find maybe a Ruger .2245 that's already threaded, I would go ahead and get that if I could find one for a good price. And I ended up finding one for a decent price. And it was the Ruger 1045 Lite. It was one of the first generations of that, I guess. And it's got kind of that gold-colored aluminum barrel, or not barrel, um, housing, or upper, I guess, maybe is a proper term for it. So anyway, it's all threaded and everything like that. So I went that route, and I bought that privately. Out here in Arizona, you can still do private gun sales, purchase or selling. And then what I ended up doing was I got a Ruger factory barrel that had come from the factory that was already threaded. And I, I think it went on what they maybe called their, it was a tactical edition or something called maybe a Talo, T-A-L-O, which was, I think their, oh, collaboration with a company, is it um, ATI? I think, who has some aftermarket stocks and things like that. Anyway, they made kind of like this tactical version. And I think that's what the barrel maybe came off of. Uh, I bought it off of a guy off of eBay. But what's nice about it is it has like sort of like an A2 flash hider type thing on there. And you just unscrew that and then you've got the threaded barrel. And then that flash hider can act as your barrel protector. And uh, later on, I may buy a little cap that goes on there that I can get for, you know, $10, $15 or something like that. But for now, I'll just keep it like that. So what I did on the 22 on the rifle 
is I took off the old barrel. Oh, and that cost me, I think, I don't know if I mentioned before, but it cost me about $80. So it was significantly cheaper than, number one, either going out and buying a new gun and then trying to sell my old one and this, that, and the other thing. And it was significantly cheaper to buy it that way than to try and get like one of the aftermarket barrels and all this other type of stuff. So I had thought about as well, well, let me get back to this. I put in the new barrel and it's, it's, it's a relatively very simple thing to do. You just sort of take it out, uh, the, the old barrels, you'll, you'll take it out of the stock and then you have your little V block and you undo two, uh, Allen head screws and then you just pop in the new barrel and sometimes you got to kind of push it and wiggle it around. And then you need to move it around a little bit to where that extractor is going in and, and pulling out and it's not binding up or anything. So you want to sort of move the barrel here and there. So the also that barrel doesn't have any sights on it at all, which I don't really care about because primarily with a 22 I use, uh, I, I just use an old scope that I've got on there. So anyway, I was able to do that. I went out, some uh, couple of buddies of mine went out and we went to a shooting spot and then I just put a couple quick uh, 10 round magazines, two of them for just to make sure that it would extract fine. And it did fine and it shot fine. I probably need to spend some time kind of fine tuning it a little bit with a, with a particular scope that I have on there. But I wasn't really so much shooting for accuracy as I was just trying to say, okay, well, can it sort of hit what I'm, what I'm in general aiming at? I mean, getting in the right area. And I pretty much was. So I also at the same time took out that 2245 and shot that. That did fine. Now I did do a couple of modifications to that. And I actually bought some things from a company called Tandem Cross on the 2245. There we go. It has the magazine disconnect. And what you can do is you can take that stuff out and then you put a little bushing that sort of takes up the space. And what that allows you to do is your magazines drop easier. It also will allow the gun to be dry fired without having a magazine in it. It also makes disassembly for cleaning and things like that much, much easier. Also on the bolt hold open or the bolt catch, the way that the old stuff was is you couldn't slingshot it, meaning you couldn't pull back on the on the bolt and let it go. You sort of had to take the mag out, drop it down, you know, all this other kind of nonsense. So it's sort of like how on the the Ruger 1022, how it had that ridiculous thing where you couldn't pull the bolt back and just release it uh, unless you go in and do like an aftermarket type thing, which I had done on mine. But anyway, I did those two modifications. Uh, the gun shot and, 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 and runs fine. Now, I had also wanted to do, they have the loaded chamber indicator, which basically has, if you look inside the chamber, you there's a, a piece of metal. And what that does is it rests up against the edge of the cartridge when it's when it's actually chamber when it's actually in the gun and chambered. And it what it does is it pivots and it makes on the outside of the barrel you can see the little barrel indicator thing. The little it's on a line it's a little plastic piece that sort of gets popped out. And some people say, well, it can affect accuracy because it's pushing up against the shell. Maybe sometimes it can affect how things are going to extract because it's something that's that's again that's pushing up against the the base of the cartridge 
And so, you know, it, it, it can maybe give you problems. And it was sort of the same thing with some of the other mods of with that bushing. Maybe if you get rid of some of those internal components, it can help you a little bit better maybe with uh, some accuracy. Maybe there's uh, the gun runs a little bit better. Maybe you're going to have a little bit bigger, excuse me, better trigger pull, that type of stuff. I, you know, I don't know about that. But anyway... So I went to do that modification and the way that, that it is, is on the underside of the barrel, there's a little cutout thing and then you have a pin that's been pressed in. And then there is sort of a, a recess sort of around that pin, but the pin is there is, is down deep enough to where you can't, it still, it still kind of protrudes a little, but there's no way to get a tool in there, or at least a tool that I have and, and be able to pull that pin out. And there's no way because of the nature of how the pin sits there, you can't access it from the top. There's no way to come get it because it's so inside that aluminum housing. It's like if they drilled up into it and then pressed the pin, well, the, the hole they put in there doesn't go all the way through. So you can't get a, a punch or anything and drive it out. So what tandem cross recommends, if you go and watch their videos is they say, Oh, get a strong magnet and it'll, some of them it'll just pop out. Well, of course mine doesn't just pop out. So I went over and looked at some other YouTube videos, but everybody is sort of saying the same thing. Oh, just get a magnet, get a strong magnet, like a rare earth magnet, and it will, it'll just come right out. Again, mine wasn't doing it. It wasn't budging. And I couldn't even get it to move out a little bit to where maybe if I could get it to sit proud of that recess that's been cut, maybe I could get a hold of some pliers or rig something up to pull it out. I actually tried to drill it, but the pin is so hard and the, the cheapy little drill bits that I have, it just, it basically just walks. Um, and I don't have, I may try and get a, a small, uh, cold chisel or something like that, where I can tap it and see if I can't maybe get something started, get a little bit of a hole started. And then I might be able to do it to where the drill bit won't want to walk. And my idea was, well, if I can drill down in there just a little bit, I can then take either a, maybe another pin or, or some type of, maybe even just a little bit trigger, excuse me, bigger drill bit, kind of get that in there and then be able to pull it out. So almost like extracting a struck, a stuck screw type deal. But again, these parts are so small that it's very difficult to be able to do that. So for now, I've just left it in. I've got the part. It was only like a 10 or $12 part, something like that. And the replacement part is, it's basically just a filler where that old indicator was. And then what you do is it fits in there and then you just lock, you just screw it in there with a little bit of blue Loctite on it. And the filler part, the little filler bar that goes in there is threaded. So once you screw that in through the original hole, it gets in there and locks in. And then basically it just fills in the, it just fills in the thing. Now I saw on some forums that a lot of people said, well, sometimes Ruger presses them in sometimes they're pressed in super hard. Sometimes they'll come out. Sometimes they won't. If you have problems, some people have gone in with a, a Dremel with a little cutoff wheel and cut like a slot on it and then got a screwdriver and then just tried to twist it and loosen it up that way. Other people have gone in and uh, cut out all the little plastic around that uh, on the, the little actual indicator and then been able to try and maybe get at the pin that way. What I think I might do because they're relatively cheap is I will get a, a pretty strong 
rare earth magnet, maybe something that's like, you know, a 25 or even a, um, oh, I think they have not even go up to like, I want to say 50, but maybe I'm making that up. Uh, 50 pounds. I know they, I know for sure they go up to like 45. Well, I, I guess some of them even go up higher than that. But anyway, I can get one of those that goes up to like 40 or uh, like 45 or 50 for around 10, $15, maybe right around in there, depending on what I want to get. And I think I'll give that a try and see what happens. See if I can't actually get it to pull out. And if it doesn't work, well, then I've got a cool magnet anyway, so which can be used for a host of other things. Anywho, so I think that's about it for the 22 stuff that I've done. And once I get the suppressors, I'll, I'll uh, let you guys know. But like I said, I don't expect to get those in for at least another six to eight months, probably. So, you know, we're looking sometime into 2017 before I get those things. I talked a little bit before about if I do the short barrel rifle, that's something where, again, because it's a trust, let's say if I do that in the next two or three months, um, if I wanted to actually start to build that or just even buy like a completed upper or something, I would have to, well, I, I think, and again, I think because I will have previously submitted the stuff for the second suppressor that I'm getting, that I would be fine on there. I think I just send in a form that says, hey, nothing has changed. And everybody who is a responsible person, none of that stuff has changed. And, and there's been no, nobody's been charged with any crimes or convicted of any crimes or nobody meets any of the criteria that would preclude you from possessing these items type stuff. But we'll see if they, if they make it to where, you know, you got to do it every time, then so be it. It's one of those things. Now, an interesting thing I saw in an email from the silencer shop that they were going to try and have a thing, almost like a kiosk machine to where you could go in and it would take your, it would take your picture and then it would also take your fingerprints. And then it would basically just print that stuff out for you and then, you could you could do it that way. There may be even a way where they're looking at trying to electronically send that in to the ATF. I don't know if that was that would work out or not. I like the idea of the kiosk. Uh, then you would just you know you would pay the money to that. Now for your picture, you could of course go down to Costco or to Wal Walmart or Walgreens or something like that, anywhere they take a, a passport photo. You pay for there. For the fingerprints, I think you got to go down to your local police department and have that done there. And it would be similar to like what I had to do back when I got my concealed carry weapon or concealed carry license, my CCW out here. And I, I think it's maybe, I think it's like a, it used to be, maybe it was like a $15 charge or something like that. But I think once you do that, like I said, you should be good for a while. Uh, but if you had to do it every time, uh, then you'd have to do it every time. And again, part of it is, you know, it's the government sort of, Number one, kind of getting their maybe piece of the pie, but it's also, you know, again, it's a way to sort of fine you or punish you for wanting to do this stuff. The reality of it is what I should be able to do is if I've, if I've got the trust, I should just be able to send in a very simple form to ATF. If they're going to, if they're going to do this, all it should be is just a little simple form. They run a background check on me and then it's done. And the form should just be this is what I want. This is the serial number, the end, you know, or, or if in the case of something, maybe where there would be multiple people using it, you could just do a thing of, you know, if you had a 
they could even make it super easy. If you had a CCW thing from your state, then you're exempt. All you have to do is just send in a copy of that and you're done. So anyway, I know there's other hoops and stuff you got to jump through and, and anything when you're dealing with the government. So let's see, I covered, uh, my 22, we talked about NFA stuff. Let's talk a little bit about something that I heard on NPR the other day. I was flipping through the channels in the, in the uh, truck on the way home and a little thing came up on NPR and they said, Oh, we're going to be talking about concealed carry, you know, in the next hour or so. So I got home, put on the radio. And at first I thought, well, do I even want to listen to this? Is it going to be worth it? Because I, am I just going to get frustrated because I sort of know what they're going to do? I, I, I already know kind of the direction that the supposed unbiased taking a look at concealed carry, the rise of concealed carry is going to take. So anyway, it was on the Diane Reem show, which she is a very left-leaning Democrat, doesn't make any sort of bones about that. And on the show, they had four guests total. So the show, it was going to be the 10 o'clock show. Uh, They usually started around Oh, you know, a little bit after 10 and it ends a little bit before 11. So that hour, they had three guests. They had a guy named Evan, and I can't remember his last name, who was a writer for New York Magazine. And he had written a, I think, a, what they call a quote unquote long article entitled Making a Killing the Business of like Guns and something or other. I, I don't remember the exact thing of it. You can probably Google like just making a killing in the New Yorker magazine and it will it will go ahead and pop up. They had another guy named John Donahue, who was a professor from Stanford University, who has, you know, done all these studies on the effects of of having a gun or having a concealed carry permit, what actually happens. And then they had uh Tim Schmidt, who some of you guys may know he is the founder of is it Concealed Carry Magazine? And then they also had, very briefly, a lady, young lady by the name of Antonia. I think her name, last name was Okabar, or I think it was something like that. Uh, the the host, that Diane Reem, you know, she has a, a very unique, I guess, way of speaking and sometimes I can't really understand or her voice kind of gives out a little bit uh, and I think she's had some medical problems so I'm not I'm not necessarily making fun of her but I'm just saying that's how she sort of talks she she sometimes she talks a little bit like if you know who Catherine Hepburn is she talks a little bit like her and sometimes her her words kind of trail off a little bit and when she was saying who this lady was on the last name she was her her voice kind of trailed off somewhat but anyway the thing that I found interesting about it was that as I started listening, I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to time how long the people get to speak for and see if they actually kind of present it fairly. You know, much like when, when in the, in the uh, last presidential debates, when Ron Paul was up there, you would actually count the minutes that he got compared to everyone else. And he'd get like two minutes when everybody else was, was getting double or triple that time. So I thought, I wonder if it's going to be something like that. So again, the guy Evan from the New Yorker magazine and John Donahue, who's a professor from Stanford, while they presented, tried to present themselves as, oh, we were just looking at the data. We're just finding out what's going on. 
they are basically anti-gun and they're anti-concealed carry. Also, the host, Diane Rehm, is anti-gun, anti-concealed carry. What I found interesting in the first maybe 17 minutes of the show, the, the gentleman Evan and the other guy, the professor, John Donahue, talked for pretty much the whole time except for about 45 seconds and right toward the end, maybe even you could even say a minute, but with that minute what happens is the host comes on and says, oh, this is so-and-so, this is Tim Schmidt, he's the founder of this magazine, blah, blah, blah. What do you think? And he says, he starts his, his little spiel and he gets about maybe mm, 30 seconds in and then she says, well, we got to go to a break. So during that whole thing, they basically had, you know, 15 to 17 minutes of anti-gun stuff where the both the guy who wrote the magazine article and then both and, and then the professor were really laying stuff out about how it's concealed carry is not a great idea, how there's all these and they and they gave very sort of specific details. And one of the funny things is is when the guy would say the professor would he would give a specific story and say, Oh, this is so and so and so there was person A and there was person B and person B had a concealed carry permit and person A and person B met up after a night of drinking and words were exchanged. We don't know what happened and person B killed person A and then later person B was let off. And of course they, they phrase it and the way they talk about it is like this guy was let off sort of unjustly or he shouldn't, he should have, you know, faced some, some jail time. And when they were describing person A, they were saying, oh, he was a college graduate. He was this, he was that, he wrote poetry. And it's just a typical thing of kind of lionizing somebody who, and I, well, I can't remember. Maybe he didn't get killed. I think the guy got injured, like severely injured. I don't know if he maybe got paralyzed or what it was, but anyway, it's not important. It's, it's always sort of the, the, the narrative that they're trying to put forward is what's important. So without going into too many specific things, in that first thing, they, take, they, they talk about that story and they talk about these guys that have been drinking and all this other stuff. And when it's Tim's turn to talk, he says, well, hey, let me say something. First of all, that guy was not a responsible gun owner because if you're going to be carrying a gun, you shouldn't be consuming alcohol and carrying a gun at the same time. And then, bam, that's when Diane cuts him off and says, we've got to go to our break. So if you were a person who was driving in your car, your impression would be that even the guy that they have from Concealed Carry Magazine is saying, oh, it's kind of not a good idea to maybe carry a gun, which wasn't his intent at all. So when they come back from the break, he, they actually let Tim kind of talk again. He gets about a minute 30. Um, I guess I, I, at first I thought, well, I'll go down and kind of do sort of the back and forth of it. But the reality is we'll, we'll talk about when the when they were talking about concealed carry on campus and they had the young lady, the uh, Antonia came on and she was talking about it. And both the professor and the reporter were basically saying, well, we don't think it's a good idea that you have these 18 and 19 year old people that are going to be having a concealed carry permit and they're going to be on campus and they're maybe not in the best frame or their minds aren't fully formed and all this other kind of stuff. Well, previously when she had talked, she said, Look, the people that are going to have a concealed carry permit, you have to be 21 years old to get it. 
And of course, they didn't reference that. They didn't talk about that because that didn't fit their narrative. At the very end of the interview, actually, she did give, which I was surprised, she gave Tim the sort of the last word and and he kind of tried to do his stuff. But I don't know if you can go back and maybe listen to it, maybe through their archives. But again, it's the Diane Ream show and it's a, you can type in probably Diane Ream and Conceal Carry and something will pop up. As a whole, it was very biased and the questions and even when people would write in and, and, and uh, the host Diane would read out people's emails there was one where a lady said, well, I went to a concealed carry class and my concealed carry instructor said, who's here to, who's here, who is here taking this class because you want to be able to protect your home? And she said, some people raised their hand. And then she said, my concealed carry instructor said, well, you're better off getting a fire extinguisher because you're more likely to have an accidental fire in the home than you are to use a firearm. So therefore, your firearm is going to do you no good in defending your home. Now, who knows whether that's even true, whether somebody wrote that in. There's enough wacky firearms instructors out there. Maybe they were using that something as an example and the person sort of took it out of context. Who knows that stuff? But that was the type of thing that when they, when they read stuff out, it was always the negative side or the anti-gun side of it. And she would generally let the anti-gun professor or the anti-gun reporter sort of answer or agree with those things and make their points. Now, I thought Tim did a, a decent job, but, and I know when, when, you're, when these things are being recorded, you're sort of under the gun, but a lot of the stuff that, that these guys were saying, you, you couldn't really refute it because they would maybe do something and move on to something else. And that, again, is another technique these people, they know what they're doing when they're doing these shows. What I would have liked to have seen, and this is no disrespect meant towards uh, Tim Schmidt, is I would have liked to have had them had on with him John Lott, because there's a guy who's basically a walking encyclopedia, and he could really refute this stuff. In fact, at one point, the reporter was making a reference that, you know, if you are, if you have a gun in the home, you're much more likely to be killed by that gun. And then Tim actually tried to do his best to refute that and say, oh, I don't know what you know study you're referring to, but if it was this one, and he names off a study by a certain individual, that's been refuted and it was seen as a very biased study because they only interviewed people who owned guns where there had been a homicide in the home. So it didn't, it didn't really take a look at the factual data. It was, it was a skewed data set from the start. So of course you're going to get the result. And that it was basically saying uh, it was looking more at correlation and then saying that that was the cause or so. But as we know, correlation doesn't equal causation. So anyway, one of the things that the reporter did when Tim kind of confronted him about the study is the reporter said, well, I'll let so-and-so, I'll let Dr. Donahue talk about the science of it. And then he quickly moved on. So he didn't even, he didn't verify that that was the study. He didn't say, oh no, it was a different study, which leads me to believe that that was the one that Tim was talking about, uh, that the reporter had used. But again, you sort of can't have it both ways in that the reporter can't say, well, I can't talk about the science of the stuff. But then two minutes earlier or five minutes earlier, you're bringing up the study and saying, oh, here's this, this, and the other thing. Here's these studies that show this stuff. So, and there was a lot of that during the interview where at one point, they talked about how terrible school shootings are and how they're kind of happening a lot. 
And they use that as an example of, oh, well, what happens if there's all this concealed carry? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be more likely for somebody to be able to bring a gun? And when they were talking about school, uh, school shootings, when they were talking about uh, concealed carry on campus, that's one of the things that they said. And then later in that same interview, the anti-gun people were saying, well, you know, school shootings really aren't that, aren't that common when they want to say there's no reason to have anybody with firearms on a, on a school campus, on a college campus type thing. So th- there were several times where they did that, where they kind of talked out of both sides of their mouth. But the thing, the thing here that I found most interesting was that once you added up the time, so in theory we could say there was maybe two people that were on the anti-gun side that were there the whole time through the whole interview. Tim was there again for the whole interview and this Antonia uh Young, young lady. I think she was there maybe for a total of, I want to say maybe six minutes, maybe seven, if we're, if we're being generous. So the reality is what we had was pretty much throughout the whole time you had sort of three against one because the host, Diane Ream, is not, she's not asking questions or making points that are in the favor of concealed carry. So it's really a pretty much three against one the whole time. Now what I found interesting is when you look at the amount of time that the professor and the reporter got to speak and you compare that with the amount of time that Tim and Antonia got to speak, the professor uh, who was named John and the reporter who was named Evan spoke for a total of 35 minutes and the pro people who are Antonia and Tim got to speak for 17 minutes. You know, they may even, even if we said, so when we look at that, the, the amazing thing is if you doubled the amount of time that the pro gun people got to speak, it would, it would come up to 34 minutes, meaning that the anti-gun people basically got double the amount of time and, and points made on uh, to, to get their side across. Now, to be fair, some of that time on the anti-gun side, what I call the anti-gun side, was when that Diane was reading, was reading out emails and, and comments to the show. But again, every one of those comments was negative. Or the person who would get to respond to it was... Uh, I, I think there may have been one that was talking about, oh, it, you know, concealed carry can be a good thing. But, you know, a lot of the statistics that the professor was giving were things like, you know, in states that don't have concealed carry, we see a, dro- a drop in crime. And in, in states that have concealed carry, we see a rise in crime. So, or it's it's a thing where it, the, the violent crime stays the same. So who knows what study he's using? Who knows what data he's using? And that's why I really would have liked them to have at least said, okay, you could say maybe the reporter and Tim, maybe they're sort of on the same footing from a, a professional level type thing. But if you have a guy who is a statistician or I don't know exactly what his John, John Donahue's background is, why not get another guy like John Lott, who is an economist who's done all this stats, who understands all these studies and who can refute some of this stuff. But they, you know, of course they didn't do that because they had a, 
I think, an agenda. Now, I will say I'm glad that at least they sort of brought it up. At least they were they were willing to have a conversation about it and not just sort of mention it as an aside and then kind of move on, you know, after five or ten minutes. But anyway, just wanted to sort of throw out a little bit of light on that. I'm glad I kind of listened to it. I didn't really learn anything new. They sort of trotted out the same old arguments. One thing that I thought that did happen was I thought that the anti-gun people sort of controlled the narrative and that for the most part, Tim Schmidt was answering or refuting their stuff, refuting what they were saying. He, he made a couple of uh, quick points, but the majority of stuff that he talked about was sort of def- from kind of like a defensive thing. He never was sort of on the offensive or he never was able to say, well, what about this? Or what about that? Um, most of his stuff was refuting what they had said. So unfortunately they kind of controlled the narrative uh, of that, but it was, it was still a decent interview. It does kind of make your blood boil a little bit because again, you, you hear and you see sort of some of the disinformation that's being spread by those people and they're trotting out the same old stuff. So uh, anyway, I saw an interesting thing and then I'll kind of wrap up the show with this. I saw an interesting thing on Facebook where they said the guy who plays Captain America, um, Chris Evans, I think, has come out against uh, or or in support. I shouldn't say that. Maybe he's in support of the so-called assault weapons ban in, uh, is it Maryland or where was it? Maybe in, I can't remember where it was. But anyway, he's, he's throwing his stuff out, which brings up kind of an interesting point of, you know, when somebody like him or when somebody like a Liam Neeson or when somebody, uh, one of these uh, directors or something comes out or a star or, or a movie star or a TV personality comes out and says, hey, I'm basically anti-gun. You know, a lot of us react in in the manner of, well, I, uh, I'm not ever going to go see that person's movies again. Or I'm not going to support that person. And, and that's that's all well and good. But and I've talked about this before, but the reality is. A lot of the people in Hollywood and a lot of the stuff that you watch on TV, a lot of the movies that you see, a lot of the com- the products that you buy are made by companies that would be considered anti-gun or their, their uh, executives are anti-gun or, uh, you know, if they don't come right out and say it, you know, maybe they, they pull funding or they won't, uh, they, they won't allow, let's say a company like Daniel Defense to advertise on a show that the, where they're the main advertiser. They'll say, no, you know, if you let these guys advertise, we're not going to have, we're, we're going to pull our stuff. Uh, and of course, then what they're going to do is they're going to say, well, if, if you're our bigger client, we're going to go with you as opposed to our, our smaller one. So, but anyway, it brings up the question of, can you separate the art from the artist or does it, does it always taint your view of of any performance or of any movie. When you look at a actor like uh, Keanu Reeves, he's a, I, I think he's a pretty pro gun guy or uh, at least he's not anti gun. But if he were to come out tomorrow and say, Oh, I'm, I'm against guns. Would you say, well, I can't watch any Keanu Reeves movies. I don't like John wick anymore. You know? And, and a lot of times what they do is uh, when they come out, instead of saying, I don't agree with what that person is saying. And I don't agree with his political view. And I think he's he's supporting something that would infringe on my civil liberties or my human or natural rights, whatever you want to call it. They'll attack the person. 
and I've been guilty of doing it in the past as well, but I try hard. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of free speech, and I think that the answer to what I would consider bad speech is not to censor somebody, but is more speech, meaning that you you confront the idea and you don't attack the person. So anyway, uh, let me know what you guys think. And please forgive kind of the squeaking of my chair and stuff here and there. Uh, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap up the show. There's tons and tons of other stuff to listen to. Lots of good pro-gun stuff that's out there. Anyway, uh, I think that will do it. And I will talk to you guys next time.